0: Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I am joined by Sommelier Chris O'Hearn, who is the founder of Parcel Wine, which is a importer of wine based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Previously, we've had a couple of people on, like Amanda Moss, who's a sommelier but deals with wine sales, and talked a little bit, I think, to Daniel Souter a little bit about this too, as well. But really haven't had anybody on who is like a dedicated importer, somebody on that side of the fence of kind of the wine world. So I really wanted to have somebody on who has a background in that and, you know, kind of discovered. Chris through Instagram when he launched Parcel Wine and, you know, was pretty intrigued by the whole situation and operation, and everything, and uh, reached out to him and said, hey, you know, would you be interested in coming on the podcast, kind of sharing your story and talking a little bit more about kind of wine importing and, and everything like that? And he was like, yeah, sure. So got it set up and, and had a great conversation. And you can find some of the wines that he imports at Iris Reed, which is Daniel Souders, uh wine shop. Been on the podcast a couple of times, but Parcel Wine, you know, brings wines in for a bunch of different restaurants in Cincinnati area too as well. So if you follow them on Instagram, you know, they'll post different pop-ups and stuff that they're doing where Chris is doing kind of wine pairings with a chef and stuff like that. So they got a lot going on. It's pretty cool. And he kind of gets into everything that they got going on now and then future things that they want to get into as well. You can follow them on Instagram at parcel underscore wine. You can also follow Chris's kind of personal individual account, which is at SF Rover. And uh, you can follow us on Instagram too as well, at Spoon Mob. We're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. Spoon Mob one on Twitter and Facebook. And then I think TikTok's just at Spoon Mob. But check out the website, spoonmob.com. We have different pictures and information about all of our guests. Uh, We kind of have them in order of latest episode release to um, oldest. If you go on the website there, it's broken down into chef categories, um, people that are actively cooking in the kitchen. Uh, Then we have sommeliers, people involved uh, in the wine world. And then just kind of around the hospitality industry, you know, chocolatier. We've had different restaurant owners, you know, that aren't in the kitchen, but they own the restaurant and had them on too as well. Butchers, uh, all that stuff. So anybody else kind of fishmongers, fish purveyors, stuff like that all falls into that category. So it's all on the website there links to all the individual episodes too as well so if you're looking for a particular one didn't want to go all the way back through the feed but make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from All the episodes are available. They'll download right away into your podcast player. If you're subscribed or following the podcast, um, each platform has a different kind of verbiage for that. We have a YouTube channel you can subscribe to. Episodes released there about a week after they come out on all the podcast apps. Uh, You feel free to write in questions, comments, feedbacks, anything like that too as well. Uh, Spoonmob at yahoo.com or through the contact portal on the website. So shout out to everybody who's been writing in and appreciate all the feedback and support too as well. So without any further delay, Here is my conversation with uh, Sommelier Chris O'Hearn, the owner and founder of Parcel Wine in Cincinnati, Ohio. Cool. Well, thanks again for agreeing to come on the the podcast here and and talk a little bit about your career and kind of what you're doing now. I first uh, kind of learned about you uh, through Jordan Anthony Brown, who was doing, I think, like a guest chef dinner at the baker's table, which is just over the river there into kind of Newport, Kentucky. And you were doing the wine pairings for it in that event and everything and kind of looked into kind of what you had going on with parcel wine and everything and kind of more uh, along the lines of a distributor and importer versus kind of a either, you know, wine sales or anything like that. You do have background in that. So before we kind of get into how you founded parcel and everything that you're going to be doing with it, you know, how did you kind of first get involved with wine?
1: I grew up in Northern California. We moved there from Great Britain when I was pretty young and my parents were always into wine. I think they were really into European wine when we lived in the UK. Moving to California and the San Francisco Bay Area, there's just an abundance of, you know, Sonoma and Napa stuff around. This is in the mid 90s. Um, my parents were just kind of enamored with the fact that they could go two hours north or less and, and visit wineries and that became a popular thing for them to do. So once I got my driver's license, I kind of became their DD to uh, Napa and Sonoma. That was basically my intro to the wine world uh, was kind of sitting in the parking lot of winery tasting rooms while my parents were drinking, which was totally fine with me. I'm if, if I wasn't messing with wine, I'd be messing with cars and my dad had nice cars. And that was kind of the deal was I get to drive and uh, they get to spend as much time as they like tasting wine. So I'd say running around wine country like early on and then normal sort of like high school goofing around was to raid my parents' wine cellar in the night with my friends rather than like replacing the the large bottle of vodka and refilling it with water. We were sneaking out bottles of champagne and probably really expensive wine. That's the kind of stuff I would get busted for as a kid. I uh, moved up to San Francisco for school. I went to San Francisco State and my parents were nice enough to kind of keep my interest in wine alive. Um, by bringing me a couple bottles here and there every time they visited me, so that was really great. Go, it um, passed through the city to go up to to Napa, or Sonoma, and on the way back, they'd give me a you know two bottles or six bottles or whatever they would found, just because they knew that I was interested and they kind of thought that was great. Less of me turning into sort of a, a British like lager lout or uh, you know a, like a kid with a beer fascination, although I did brew some of my own beer in school just because. I was fascinated by it, but it was also cheaper than buying beer.
0: Up to that point, did you ever work in a restaurant or anything like that? Or was it strictly just a wine chauffeur for your parents up until you hit college?
1: Just the wine chauffeur. So I worked uh, like in high school, after high school, and and through college. I uh, was a barista, actually. Um, So I worked at some neighborhood coffee shops down in the Cupertino and Saratoga area, the Bay Area. And in San Francisco, I worked for Starbucks, which was totally fine. I I would say in the early 2000s, it was really, really good pay for living in that city for a a kid in school. I kind of had this obsession with like the corporate world. Like I wanted to go into, you know, a desk job, an office job in like a big high rise and have, you know, sort of that like movie corporate job experience. Uh, My dad was a Silicon Valley tech guy. So I think I just wanted to have some kind of like high powered office gig. After school, I'd studied marketing. I asked uh, Starbucks if I could move into a marketing role and they gave it to me um, for uh, the Bay Area for Northern California. It was the worst job I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, I was miserable. I hated the office environment. I really disliked knowing how my day was planned out for weeks on end. And just knowing that I had the same thing to do every single week, it just felt repetitive and dull. And I don't know, uh, it just was not me. I knew that right away, that it wasn't gonna work. And it, it definitely prompted me to do the thing that drove the rest of my career and my life, which was I quit my job and bought a one-way ticket uh, to Europe so I could be a backpacker, traveler, whatever you want to call it. And I didn't know when I was going to come back. It ended up being a 15 month trip, but there was, you know, that did dovetail into uh, working in in Italy, working a, a grape harvest as well as making some olive oil, but also just the culture surrounding food and wine. And it wasn't really explained to me. You just kind of pick up on it intuitively that you can sort of slow down and enjoy these things and that they are, you know, the more important parts of life. I think coffee was one, coffee culture always grabbed me uh, in Italy as being so amusing was it was, it was go down to the, to the square in the town, regardless of what we were doing, we were doing big, important work. And it's like my mindset coming out of you know California was like, hey, let's finish this. It'll take us 40 more minutes and then we'll go break for an hour and have coffee and all of that. And uh, it's like, no, now, now it's time to go for coffee. Uh, You can come back and finish this later. Like everything can be done later. But this was such an important part of the day was to go break for coffee. And we'd really just go down to the square and get an espresso, smoke cigarettes and talk bullshit. And it really wasn't that important. But uh, looking back, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, really shapes a a sort of food and wine mentality down the road. Um, And every evening was like the same, but replace the coffee with wine, basically, and go on As late as you wanted it to. That trip and that, that, the backpacking element and the smells and the sights and the markets and the lifestyle of uh, not needing to be anywhere. Of course, I was being, you know, a bum at the time, but uh, just experiencing things in different places and uh, having the food and the wine be specific to a place, that became so much more important to me.
0: For your backpacking trip, did you specifically start in Italy or did you have kind of any roadmap or anything that you kind of had planned out at all? We started in the UK was earlier in in a
1: year, was in in the spring of uh, 2007. Didn't get to Italy until uh, later in the year. So uh, in time for harvest, I guess it was probably mid-August by the time I got there. It was hot and it was Tuscany. It sounds like a really great story. There's a ton of great stories in wine that you know are, are peppered with a little bit of bullshit, but this one uh, actually happened. Was I was my girlfriend and I girlfriend at the time, and I were uh, backpacking, walking along a road in Tuscany, and I had miscalculated what time the buses run until, and we were walking like towards a town that was ten miles away with no real plan uh, to get there and there's no traffic there's no hitchhiking there's none of that so we just kind of threw a tent down in a field on the side of the road thinking we'll get a few hours and in the morning we'll you know catch a ride somehow and we were really exhausted so ended up with uh, the guy whose family owned the field kind of kicking the tent and saying you know you're on my land like what are you doing here and 5 minutes later like being offered breakfast and to come into the house and meet his family. And 15 minutes after that being offered a job to like trenches and help with harvest. And a week later being offered to stay for a couple of months, which I did. So when did you know it was time to come back? It's really just running out of money. <laughs> like, I wish it was, uh, I wish it was like, well, it's time to like get my life together. If I could have done that for the rest of my life and had, you know, had I, had I thought that everything I'd ever want um, would adapt to that lifestyle I'd probably still be doing it. I moved back and um, I actually lived in Utah for a little while. I lived up at Sundance Resort, which is owned by Robert Redford, and coincidentally moved into a home as a caretaker, which is where they pay you a small amount of money every month to to take care of the home. you know people buy these big mountain homes and then they can't they can't be there to you know take care of the pipes and the heating and the snowfall and all of that up in the mountains so um, you're there, but you you get to live in these really nice homes like 10 months out of the year. And next door neighbor was uh, Bob Redford's girlfriend at the time. So I got to know him pretty well. And then he got to know my story about making wine in Italy. And uh, Sundance is up in Provo Canyon. So it's near the the Mormon community of Utah. He's like, well, I'm going to assume you know more about wine than a lot of people who work here. So take on, uh, take on like a wine director position at the resort. And uh, I did. I went down into uh, Provo and went to like a Barnes and Noble and read every wine book I could over the weekend. Felt like I really learned nothing and then showed up to work on a Monday and just dove right in. And I instantly was intrigued by wine reps. Like wine reps started coming by and meeting with me and trying to get me to buy wine. And it just seemed like the coolest job in the world. It seemed like selling wine to restaurants and ski resorts and stores must be so much fun. (laughs) <laughs> which is, is, you know, in retrospect, that's hilarious. Um, but I kind of fostered relationships with some brokerages in in Utah. Um, the state system there's a little different. So it, it's really an interesting way of selling wine, but probably it's not super important. It more or less is the same. But I got involved with a, a distributor in Salt Lake City, moved up there and started selling wine. Just kind of came through the the ranks, like the old fashioned way. So I used to go to stores on uh, the first Monday of the month, put up cases of uh, like Yellowtail and take a picture with an old digital camera and send it to my boss and he'd sell it to the guys who sold Yellowtail to us and they'd sell, send me like 10 or 15 bucks for every picture I took and like all of that. So um, pretty funny, like very old school wine rep stuff. Um, I always had a little towel in my back pocket to make sure the bottles that were mine in stores looked nice and shiny clean and dust them off um, and it was kind of a, it was an amusing thing for me as a kid like walking by and seeing that all the bottles in the aisle were dusty but only dusting off mine and leaving the other ones <laughs> like just got this taste for being competitive in the market uh, but where I, I really really fell in love with the marriage of food and wine and I really didn't enjoy like the, the retail side as much but I loved helping restaurants figure out a great wine list and this was in the late 2000s Salt Lake was kind of on the rise. I would say Park City has this uh, really, really great resort town restaurant scene. They, they have it going on and it's probably exactly the same now as it was then. But Salt Lake was starting to get these small, you know, farm to table or whatever you want to call them restaurants, uh, specifically one restaurant that started out was called Pago, still there today. And I know uh, Scott Evans, who started that, has a lot of restaurants around the salt lake area now first place in salt lake to talk about you know responsibly farmed wine as well as the food and that you know if it's on the table and it's going in your body food or wine it it should matter where it comes from and so i had a lot of late nights staying up talking to scott from Pago, and um it was my favorite thing to see this one restaurant like rise up in this market where you know chains were king and there wasn't a whole lot of uh dynamism and the culture of of food and wine being there and seeing an entire town kind of come up on the rise was was also like a really inspiring thing for me i don't think i would have stayed in utah as long as i did um without seeing all these restaurants pop up and start to do interesting things with wine but uh I worked for that distributor for about two and a half years and I got picked up by a winery in California and, you know, I was trying to get home. So I moved back to California and I did national sales for a winery in Napa
0: for several years. So when you become the wine director for the first time, going back just a little bit, is that for the entire film festival or is that just like a restaurant that Redford has? Sundance, the resort and the film festival are are
1: separate. They are both, you know, managed by him. So the resort is up Provo Canyon, about a 40 minute drive away from Park City where the film festival is held. And there are two big restaurants at the resort and a bar. And then there used to be a restaurant in Park City called Zoom. And that was under the sort of the wine world that I was in as well. The film festival was a different thing that was just chaos. Um, Like every theater in Salt Lake Park City, and the screening rooms at the resort were just overtaken by people from out of town. No real wine picked out for film festival stuff. It really was just like, has to come off the restaurant list. And that goes back to Utah's weird liquor laws.
0: Yeah, because aren't there like a bunch of things in Utah? I've never been to Utah. Isn't it like, you know, you can't drink a beer while standing in a bar? Like, isn't there weird shit like
1: that? There's definitely some bizarre stuff they have. The curtain in the restaurant, like they have to have a a divider between the bar where where drinks are prepared and the restaurant seating. The idea being that like if a five-year-old was having dinner with their family, they wouldn't see alcohol being prepared in a way that was intriguing, I guess. None of it makes sense. There's a, a maximum amount of liquor that can be poured, which was like, I think they switched it to one and a half ounces while I was living there. It used to be one ounce, but you can't order a sidecar of the same liquor to, to complement your cocktail. So you could get a Jack and Coke, but you couldn't get a shot of Jack on the side because they'd assume you were dumping it straight in. But it was legal to have a Jack and Coke and get a shot of tequila. Laws for drinking made by people who don't drink.
0: (laughs) So you wind up going back to San Francisco, getting back home, you know, you're doing wine sales there too. So I did, I took on a national sales gig for a
1: winery, which meant I covered most of the United States. And that was the appeal for me, again, was like, looking back at that, uh, you know, the corporate model, like, oh, yeah, I'm like, gonna jet set for work, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be on a plane, I'm gonna, you know, no desk, no office, but uh, airplane seats and hotel rooms. And you find out pretty quickly it's not great. <laughs> like it's, it's pretty crazy, especially if you live in a city like San Francisco, it's so expensive to live there. And then you're never there. So I was doing uh, anywhere from like 32 to 42 weeks a year on the road, uh, trying to cover every state and manage a distribution network for one winery with at its core, like five to seven wines. So I'm, I'm showing the same thing to sales reps at distributors all over the country and managing California as well. And I really, really loved it. I loved it a lot. It was the most fun. So that was a winery uh, that was farming biodynamically. And I completely fell into uh, the world of, of responsibly farmed wine or, you know, beyond that. Uh, biodynamics became important to me. I guess, I guess natural wine, although I don't often like to use that, that moniker for it. Um, but, uh, you know, a minimal intervention wine, I guess. Uh, It's a better way to describe it, but fell into that world, fell more into the world of of food and wine. The the winery where I worked, the vintner's wife was a a chef, very acclaimed chef. I got to uh, eat great food, have wine on the table that was just as good um, and learn that life like a little bit more. But also I got to see the United States for the first time doing that job. And I I did that for two other wineries uh, after that. And on the third go around, I moved to Ohio. Um, So that was in 2016. But I'd say that being on the road, meeting people all over the country, it kind of removed the idea in my head that California was the end all be all place to be. Um, I still really love it and I miss it. But I had just like the best time in Kansas City one time that Blew me away, and like a you know a buyer who had met me earlier that day took me to a Royals game, and you know drinking cheap beer, and then went to his house and drank all this wine. And I just thought, you know, everyone the world over is just enjoying the same kind of things everywhere. And combined that with the that sort of city on the rise thing that I learned in Utah, I kind of just started wanting to live somewhere else.
0: When you're doing all this traveling, are you in a state for a week and hitting up multiple cities? Are you like? Flying into Kansas City, you're there for a day and a half and then you're back out. Depends on where. So,
1: like, I'd go to South Carolina, fly on a Monday morning, be there by Monday afternoon, do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in like uh, Greenville, Columbia, and Charleston. So, each a day for each market. And then on Friday, they'd assemble like their whole sales team at an office and I'd go do a presentation, and then go to the airport and go home. But, you know, if it was Kansas City or if it was, you know, a smaller a smaller town around where there's not there's not a whole lot else going on in the market. Like if you go say to Oklahoma, you can sell wine in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. I could fly in on Monday night and be going home by Wednesday evening. It was pretty rare that I'd fly somewhere and, and fly back on like a day or two turnaround. Cause it just is kind of it's almost like I try to figure this out over a phone call or an email instead. Pretty much gone Monday through Friday. And then you get back to San Francisco where the wine scene is just like bustling and everybody is busy. And there's a ton of salespeople like me running around all week making sales and I was gone. So I'd make up for it on like Friday, Saturday. So I'd get home on a Friday afternoon or evening. I'd be texting my friends on the, on the cab ride from the airport to my place. Like, what are we doing tonight? And, you know, showered and out the door again, like in time for dinner and hit two or three places and end up at NOPA, at like one in the morning opening magnums and stuff and and eating cheeseburgers and doing all of that you know, the wine guy stuff in san francisco so doing all of those things led me to where i'm at because uh, uh one of my favorite restaurants in san francisco was a little place called hillside supper club and it was not far from my apartment and so i was there all the time but that's uh austin and tony ferrari who are cincinnati-based guys and they're, they're from here they had that restaurant out there and they were you know they were almost like you know neighbors. They lived really close to me. They were invited to do a stint at the James Beard House in 2015, and I went with Austin. We were working on the wine stuff together, and uh, I met I uh, met a girl that he went to high school with on that trip to New York. So I think we were getting a drink somewhere, and and he said, "Oh, this girl I I, I knew growing up is going to meet us for a cocktail," and she met. And anyway, fast forward. Long story short, but that's today. My wife. I live in Cincinnati. <laughs> Have two kids and a house and all that. So, and Austin and I still have dinner like a couple times a week.
0: Yeah, they got a couple different uh, concepts there in Cincinnati that I've heard good things about. Fausto. and it's so rare to see any place doing lunch and then also doing lunch only. Like it's such a throwback, but everything that they're doing looks looks amazing. When you're doing the wine sales, how competitive? Is that I mean, how often do people move around or because you're in like the Mecca of wine kind of in the U.S. and San Francisco Bay Area. So is it super competitive, like wineries and different distributors are always trying to pluck people from from other organizations, or is it just kind of like everybody's kind of in the industry and just kind of floats around, much like the, the hospitality and restaurant industry, where it's like somebody will be here for a couple of years, and then they'll go over across the street for a couple of years, and then they'll go over here.
1: It's competitive.
0: The side I was on, the
1: what we call the supplier side or the producer side, um, you're managing distributors, even in your home market, you have people out selling your wine. If you're, if you're sitting at home on a Thursday afternoon with your laptop catching up for the week, you can be confident that someone's out there like trying to sell your wine or talk about your wine, or you hope so anyway. There's a lot of people doing that job who live and are based in San Francisco. There's a lot of distributor people too. I, I'd say it, it usually makes sense for wineries and producers to pick up salespeople from distributor teams. And a lot of the times people on distributor teams are either right out of school uh, and go straight into that, or they were in restaurants and bars before that. So usually it's just a lot of hospitality people working their way through, but the amount of years you spend working or the amount of time you spend working one job for one producer or one distributor, um, it's got a dog years feel to it. Uh, if you work for a producer for three or four years, people are like, wow, uh, what are you going to do next? That's a long time. It's it's really not that long of a time. But if you work for one producer and sell the same wines and travel all the time, you know, three four years starts to feel like eight or nine years just because you're doing it every day. And it's the kind of job that kind of becomes the focal point of your life. Like I said, like even in my free time, I'm out socializing with people who might think more favorably of my wine if they saw me the night before, or um, spending time in restaurants that that do buy my wine. And they appreciate that. And um, wine sales is is so multifaceted in that sense. It really is just a people business. It's all relationship driven.
0: And at some point, did you get involved with like a wine shop, Ardor? Oh, Ardor. (laughs) How did you find out about that? I do some research. I dig. (laughs) No, there is a wine
1: shop called Ardor. That's really funny. That, that 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 shop has nothing to do with me. A few years ago, I wanted to uh, have my own label uh, before I left California. And so a, a friend and I were looking at purchasing some fruit from this really amazing site I love up in Mendocino called Alder Springs. Um, and that's owned and operated by this guy, Stu Bewley, who is one of the most amazing, charismatic, grape growers in in all of the United States, um, definitely in California. I think he's one of the most interesting people. He has some of the best ideas about fruit, but he also had some Cap Franc, which is uh, a serious love of mine, and is on this beautiful site with a little bit of elevation. And so Ardo was the name that we came up with for the label, and we got pretty far along with it and had the business plan set and had the money set aside and got to the – I think we got to like – a month before it was time to pick fruit and realized that we weren't going to be able to do it. It was just the, kind of the way things like peter out like that. And a couple of years after that, my friend kind of reignited it and slightly renamed it. And he's out there like making those wines. I actually saw him at the Coast Swaff in Chicago in March. So it, it kind of like came to life on its own later, but it's not named that anymore. And Ardo was just uh I had formed the company and done all the, the paperwork. So it's out there in the, in the world, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was a, a half-hearted attempt to get started on, on my own label. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of reasons it just wasn't going to work. And I think it was just like a passion thing that I thought would go somewhere and didn't. But uh, that's so funny that, that that came up. I didn't,
0: uh, no, I didn't get involved with a wine shop. Is that something you would ever consider venturing down the road again to or based on your previous experience, zero interest in winemaking and having a wine label and stuff like that? I'm definitely not a winemaker.
1: I could see partnering with someone who is (laughs) and you know, you got to play to your strengths. Like it wouldn't be one of mine. My personality doesn't work for winemaking. I'm not a very patient person. Yeah, I got... Too much going on to to go down that road now. Um, I would I would probably if I wanted to have my own label on something, I would I would find somebody great who wanted to partner with me and be part of it, and maybe it has a little like note saying that it's partially mine or something. Or I don't know. I don't even care. I don't really need to make wine at this point. I I've accepted that I'm a sales lifer. I would say the one thing I didn't really say I would ever do again was. Uh, the distribution side, and here I am with my own distribution company, and uh, that that just cracks me up on
0: its own. You wind up in Cincinnati. your wife is I'm assuming from Cincinnati, and at that point were you already kind of tinkering with the idea of starting your own distribution company or because you wind up at Winecraft for a little bit and they do like importing, I think over Ohio and Kentucky, right? So. Or was it like when you were there that you kind of started having the idea, like, I could probably do this on my own, or this be something I would want to make a business out of? I, I came here working
1: for a winery based out of Hillsburg, California, and covering the East Coast and a bit of the Midwest. Cincinnati's not a great jumping off ground to do national sales. Uh, mostly, the you know, there's not a lot of direct flights out of here to, to major cities, and it, it started to become a bit of a chore and a burden. Uh, it was hard to travel. It was hard to get flights on short notice. And also, I just felt so disconnected from that winery being a remote salesperson. Um, And I've always felt more that I need to actually be like connected to something or, or really, really, truly love it. And I guess neither of those things were happening, but after being done at that winery, I kind of wandered into a restaurant that I really liked in over the Rhine in Cincinnati and asked if I could do, you know, bartending or wine stuff a couple days a week just to keep me interested and busy. So that was at Please um, with Ryan Santos. And so uh, I ended up working there and working on the wine list with him for a year and a half. And it kind of gave me the the full immersion restaurant experience that I had never really had. Um, the wine director thing at Sundance was a little bit hands off, uh, doing more wine and sitting at a desk, whereas um, Please was like on the floor every night as well. And there's there's nothing that in a restaurant that size, there's no position where you can say like, well, I don't do that. Everybody does everything. So after leaving Please is when I went to Winecraft. So that was in summer of 2019. And uh, that's Probably I, I wouldn't say there are many distributors out in the country like Winecraft. I can think of one other that's really similar. It blew me away how much of its own culture and how much of its own brand it had. It's so much the imprint of Gordon Hugh. If anybody who hears this, you know, knows Gordy, then then you completely understand that statement. And I just I, I loved my time there because the wines were fantastic, and he really only purchased things that that he wanted to sell, and uh, and he only worked with accounts that he wanted to work with too. Like he was perfectly happy to say to accounts or to tell his salespeople, you know, if somebody gives you a, a bunch of shit or they're not our people, you know, I give you full authority to just walk out and just be done with it, which was really cool. That, like doesn't really happen, uh, and it, you know, you don't really come across that like. But to know that you can was pretty amazing. And uh, also, yeah, the competitive nature of sales is like, no, every account's important. Everybody has a, you know, every wine has a place somewhere and you'll do. And Gordy's the guy who's like, no, that's not true. We don't have to work with assholes. And I was like, this is absolutely the way it should be done. And so you're starting to like, I think winecraft was really drilling down into like, what people love about the wine industry and especially on the sales side without adopting all of the bad habits and sort of the attitude that comes with it. And it pulled me out of being like kind of jaded on sales for a while. And I think that just cynicism comes with the, the wine industry too, probably because you're drinking a lot and eating a lot and all of that. But uh, it, it kind of reignited the passion of sales for me, especially because you're calling on accounts every single day rather than doing like, back of house admin work all the time and also just to watch the the wine scene here kind of explode uh, especially Cincinnati but started coming up to Columbus for winecraft as well and I was like this is this is about to happen you know this is this is coming along and uh and then March 2020 happened and, and everything
0: shut down we ate there a handful of times an awesome restaurant obviously it was kind of a COVID casualty I think Ryan put out a giant like Instagram post about like was closing and all that stuff too. And police and and everything. So he's like making wine out in California or something now. Last that I saw on Lisa's Instagram, but he's just kind of done with the restaurant industry for now, but kind of went out on top, which was something, I guess, uh, notable to, you know, feather in the cap kind of thing. COVID happens, everything kind of shuts down. Wine sales pretty much dry up because there's restaurants, you know, aren't open or maybe they don't dry up completely because people switch to delivery and having people come in and pick up wines and liquidating all their, their sellers, but eventually it probably catches up. I'm assuming, right?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, there was a a mad dash sort of a scramble right at the beginning there to get, to pull together what we could to kind of help people figure out what they're going to do next. And so, you know, Stephanie Webster at the Rind and Oakley wines immediately had a plan to, to get, you know, her wine on a website and start selling online. And of course, like, in this community down here, especially in Cincinnati, but I know all over Ohio. But Kevin Hart from Hart and Crew had his website and his online sales already going, and places you know bigger stores like the Party Source had kind of that you know the online situation already figured out. Um, you could see availability, and you could you know they could more easily make a plan for pickup or or whatever it was. So watching um, smaller businesses kind of go in and adopt that model, it seemed like that could work. And, and some people had a lot of success with it, and others didn't. And that's just, you know, it was a really, really difficult thing to pull off. Um, and, you know, we're still kind of figuring it all out in the aftermath. But uh, that was that was rough. That first year was was just so rough in wine sales. And it was probably the first time I thought about, you know, not doing this anymore. In 2020, my wife and I had a, a second kid and it's just exhaustion setting in, really. Um, it just—it seemed like things weren't weren't gonna come back ever. I always had in my mind the idea that maybe like a little bit of a reset could happen from uh, from COVID closures, and that maybe people would take uh, a view of opening places that really, really mattered, and that we wouldn't just open lots and lots of restaurants as soon as we could. That we would get, you know, kind of quality over quantity when we pull out of it. And uh, I'd say that right now I do feel like that is the case. It was early 2021 when I started thinking of wanting to do my own thing, though. And uh, it really, it was, uh, it took, you know, somebody getting in my ear. One of my accounts actually telling me, you know, you're you're pretty good at this and you got us sold. But just somebody who's a shit disturber was like, why? why don't you just do this for yourself? You know, you should open your own place. And uh, yeah, I kind of came up with some ideas of things that would work. And I found Parcel in the middle of all of that. Um, There were a lot of wines in California that I'd always wanted the opportunity to sell that wouldn't have ever been able to hire me as well as would not have found a good home in a larger distributor. So I kind of built my book around like, contacting these really tiny producers and seeing if they wanted to give me a shot. And that's that's kind of where we're at. Um, that was, uh, you know, Scar of the Sea was the first place I, I called. Mikey, I've known for a long time. I love his wines. I've always wanted to sell them. So I would say that's behind opening parcel. And once, once I told him like, hey, I have this idea, he was like, you have to do it. I won't sell to anyone else out there just get it up and running and then give me a call. And uh, from there, it just became easier and easier to contact people, ask if, if they'd let me carry their wines, if I could support them. And uh, I got in touch with an import company, Paris Wine Company, uh, out of Paris, not just a clever name. And they seemed to want to partner up as well. And so we did, you know, I brought on a lot of uh, French wine as well. And that's after some global shipping delays and some stuff, that's kind of landing like, Today, tomorrow, next day, Uh, that's what's going on this week right now, actually. So yeah, it kind of came together. We recently picked up uh, a good chunk of the Louis Dresner portfolio as well.
0: How different are the two, wine sales and being a distributor, or are they really kind of hand in hand where there's really a lot of overlap and there's like only a few things that are kind of different? Do you mean like a uh, supplier producer sales versus a uh, distributor? Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, you're partnering with all these wineries that you're super excited about and you're carrying their wines and, and just kind of doing the sales part too, but then you're also importing from France and there's a lot of overlap between those two, but there are some differences, right? Definitely. I try to kind of focus on the producers and the
1: story and the farming. I really care the most about those things still. I think that, If you stick to that, then you start to see the thread of similarity. um, And that's what makes a portfolio. It's what makes a great wine list in a restaurant too. But I think that kind of, you know, that my producers in France and my producers in California, they have the same mindset and they're trying to do the same thing. Um, And so the wines that they produce are really just coming out as an expression of the terroir, of the sense of place, of where they're from. But beyond that, you know, importing has its whole it has its own brand, just using that word. Um, it's a it's a much bigger thing to do. And it's a huge undertaking, uh, the licensing alone and the phone calls that you get and the customs calls. And uh, they're the kind of phone calls that I never expected to get in my life. They're pretty serious. And it's, you know, when, when you're talking one evening to somebody from the ATF, you really kind of grasp the severity of, of what you're doing. And I, I think that's like, a hilarious thing within the wine industry. I'm like, Oh, I hadn't thought of that. But it makes sense that I'm getting this phone call, not a side of the business. I knew Uh, starting your own business is so different from working for someone more than anything. The stuff I do that isn't sales is the stuff that like blows my mind. Really sales is the same. i like, I love taking wines out and sharing them with people. I love showing wines to people. I love talking about my producers. That part's fun. I love hearing about people's wine programs and I like making friends so the
0: you know working in sales and
1: running around the markets is is really fun
0: how do you decide on a new wine or winery to add to your kind of portfolio i mean it, obviously it started out like you mentioned like it was stuff that you were super excited about you kind of knew the guys nobody was kind of carrying it stuff like that but as you get bigger and bigger you know do you have offhand rules that you use like what well, has to be a wine that you enjoy or it has to be something you know, that doesn't compete with something else in your portfolio? Or how do you kind of decide that?
1: Yeah, I'd really like to figure out how to keep the portfolio as as tight and as focused as possible on certain regions. So I'm kind of looking for gaps of things I don't have, like I really want to grow an Austrian uh, portfolio. I also really want to have, you know, more Eastern European wines. Um, But then every now and then, you know, you'll come across a California producer reaching out to you via email or text or phone call or a friend. They're like, hey, I really want to get my wines in the market. And you seem like the perfect fit and I'm going to mail you samples and they do. And there's like the there's good and bad side to that, right? Because uh, you know, I know the cost of mailing out the samples. I know that feeling of excitement when you find a distributor that might be a really good fit for your little brand. And then I'll taste the wines uh, and I usually assemble like a couple of, people around here that I trust or people whose palates I want feedback from and just kind of have to read the room on, on other people's opinions. Cause I'm always excited to try something new. Uh, but you, you know, you have to tell people, no, that's kind of hard because if somebody constantly kept saying no to my small business, I I'd, I'd definitely feel that a little bit, you know? Yeah. It, it, the hardest thing for me right now is, is that there are plenty of wines available from California but it's not something I need to grow more, mostly because I need to give the attention to the people who gave me my my first shop, um, not even a year into it right now. And I think slowing down on bringing in new California stuff is, uh, is important while I build an import side. But yeah, I mean, things are price sensitive. I hate to really sell that way. So I try to avoid getting fixed on that, but uh, it's hard to make... Uh, cost-effective wines in California—that's for sure. You know, land is insanely expensive. Farming's farming's expensive. Equipment's expensive. So you don't you don't see a whole lot of that coming in. Wines that can be poured by the glass in restaurants, and that's right now finding wines that are versatile, good with food, um, and having them you know work for restaurant owners and and managers and and wine directors in a price capacity is pretty important because we're still pulling out of this you know COVID times. For me, you know, the wines have to be good. They have to be farmed a responsible way. I want to see that there's, you know, no use of herbicides, pesticides, chemicals in the vineyard. But going beyond that, and that's, you know, the minimal intervention thing. I I don't dislike the wines that are, you know, labeled as natural um, and are fun to have a glass of or two glasses of, you know, on the back patio. But I do prefer wines that have some elegance and some structure and are good with food. So I, I'd, I'd say that the wines have to be good with food. It's one of the most important things to be in my book. And if something's like, if it ticks all the boxes and it's from California and I'm not looking from, for
0: California, but it, it's exactly what I look for, then I'm still going to do it. When you get contacted by you know somebody out of California, I'm assuming they have like kind of a minimum price that they're looking to sell their wine, just because like you said, everything's so expensive where they're like, hey, we have to make like five bucks a bottle or whatever. And then you kind of figure out like your margins because of your labor of selling it and everything too as well and kind of line up and does this work? Does that not work kind of thing?
1: Right. And, and also paying respect to what they've done. I mean, a quick thing to check is always go on their website and check their wine club or their, their, um, their web retail. If their wines are all, you know, $38 on their website and I do the math and I'm like, well, everything comes out to 47 bucks the way I'm doing this something's off because I can tell you that every buyer who brings the wines in and then is getting ready to put them on their website or sell them in the restaurant is going to look that up and see the same thing because every consumer who eats in a restaurant now has their phone out and googles the wine while they're waiting for it or when it hits the table and uh, then they can see the price too so there's just a lot of like visibility in uh, pricing right now and that's really kind of changed a lot of things in the wine industry
0: is there any wine that you can't import do you need different licenses for different regions in Europe or Asia or anything like that or is it just kind of you have to have one master license so you can bring stuff in?
1: Federal US import license can pretty much bring in whatever. I'm focused on Europe. One of my producers from California has a little project going in Australia but probably talk about that down the line. I'll cross that bridge when I get to it, but Europe is is my focus right now. So Growing the French book as much as possible, as well as Italian. Um, Italian wines are very, very popular in, in Ohio. Um, and obviously, you know, Italian restaurants are the most popular restaurants in the world. But there's, I think, I'm going to go ahead and just credit Winecraft with it again. Like, sort of like love of Italian wine in this market is pretty impressive. And I know that for Gordon here, that's that's a huge passion project. So I, I assume it came from that. Um, I've always been shocked by the import market in Cincinnati, a lot of wine markets, you know, around the U S they're really the big wine markets are really different, right? Like New York has a ton of Italian wine. It's easy to find French wine, but it's mostly import stuff. And it makes so much sense. They're on the East coast, huge port, tons of wines coming in. They're really, really far from California. So you don't see a whole lot of love for, uh, domestic wines. Um, not, I mean, it's, it's still there, but it's split in favor of import. Um, when you're in San Francisco, there's a good amount of import, but I'd say it's split the opposite direction of um, New York. So you'd, you'd see more American wine and, uh, and then after that import. Um, and then when you go to Portland, Oregon, and you're like, oh, this is just going to be all Willamette Valley, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, uh, it's about 95% import. <laughs> it's like absolutely amazing. Uh, some of the best wines I've ever drank in my life, French wines, Spanish wines, Italian wines uh, were a time I spent in Portland, Oregon, which is like a terrible market to sell California pinot, which is what I was up there doing. Um, But I would extend that trip a day or two just to drink stuff I'd never get my hands on. When I moved to Cincinnati, I saw a lot of that. A lot of the great little restaurants um, around Cincinnati have these killer little import restaurant wine lists. And it's grown a lot. Like there's availability of of import wines in this market is pretty incredible so as we kind of grow uh, the wine scene in ohio i think that you know maybe cincinnati's place is to kind of like foster that import stuff so i'm trying to kind of get more fun import wines into the market i want that to be a bit more about what parcel really is uh is more an importer um i think that the responsibility of of the cities in ohio uh, especially with Cincinnati, like coming up on the rise and the restaurant scene growing and the, and the wine scene growing is to maybe um, foster like a little bit of a Midwest hub. And hopefully, you know, some of the other Midwest Rust Belt cities can kind of look here and, and look to Ohio as a place to get import wines and kind of follow trends and see where things are going. And that's, that's ambitious. I'm not saying that we're there right now, but I feel it brewing. Something is definitely going on.
0: Yeah, the way I've kind of always explained it to people who aren't familiar with Cincinnati is the one great thing that was still an unfortunate thing is like Cincinnati almost had to bottom out as a city overall financially, like you very similar to like Detroit, but not quite as bad. And that allowed everybody to kind of just open different concepts that you couldn't open in other cities because rent will be too high or, and then you can kind of explore all these different things. And now you have all these independent restaurant folks, you know, either they have one, two, three restaurants around the city, but most are different concepts. It's not like they have, you know, three locations of the same thing. Whereas here in Columbus, we were always a, a giant test market for a lot of chains. So a lot of chains had homes here and multiple locations across the city of the same thing over and over where it's starting to change here in Columbus, but Cincinnati is is way ahead of of kind of us and I think in that regard. Cincinnati all three markets right? Cincinnati
1: and Columbus and Cleveland. And I guess Dayton too. Let's let's say four markets. All of these markets to grow and take the next step, we need small restaurants like like Please or like Pleasantry places that have, you know, 35 40 45 seats. And the chef is involved in all the decisions and is the owner-operator. That's a really expensive business model for one person to take on. Um, It's a really difficult thing to do well. But those are the restaurants that usually end up being the ones moving the needle um, in pretty much any city. So, I mean, down here we have Pleasantry as well as places like Kiki, which is a neighborhood joint uh, in the neighborhood where I live. And I think it's one of the most exciting and interesting restaurants around Um, Columbus, you have commune, which is one of my favorite places to eat by far. I'm consistently blown away by that restaurant and how much thought goes into every single aspect of that place. Uh, and then in Cleveland, I just had a meal at sense pizza, and it was one of the best places I've eaten all year, if not the best, it was pretty amazing. So there's, it's happening. It's all out there, but you know, Cincinnati, like I look at pleasantry and places that are leaders in the market. I'm like, we need five more of those. Columbus you need like eight because it's so big you know and Cleveland it's just driving from one side to the other it takes a long time so you just need to I, I don't know enough about Cleveland to have a, an opinion on it but uh, it's it's cool it, it it
0: has the same architectural charm as a lot of Ohio so Cleveland's like even more segregated than us and what I mean by segregation is really separation that Cleveland, You have different pockets even within downtown and then you have stuff, you know, you have stuff in Lakewood, which is like a neighborhood over from downtown, but it's still like 15 minute drive. Like there's no real easy way to like get into downtown Lakewood from downtown Cleveland. Like you're either going through a bunch of stoplights or you're on a roundabout freeway or whatever, Where like Columbus, everything's separated. You have freeway access to everything, but I feel like people here don't want to drive 30 minutes to a restaurant. Like if they're in the suburbs, they stay in the suburbs. They might go downtown for a concert, a show, whatever, but they're not going downtown routinely, especially not outside of the weekend, you know, to eat at a restaurant, where I think a majority of the restaurants right now are, are downtown and some places are open, second locations and stuff in the suburbs. But yeah, it's it's hard to have here because everything's kind of spread out because of the freeway. Somebody have three different restaurants, all in different parts of the city where it's like, well, does that make sense logistically from getting all your products and your vegetables and, and all that stuff? So it's definitely a different challenge in, in each one for sure. You didn't take any wine exams, right? Did you ever do anything with the sommelier exams or nothing?
1: Yeah, I'm a level two, but it was a very long time ago and I don't care. Did you do it through CMS? Yeah.
0: Good experience, bad experience? Good experience.
1: Uh, I didn't match my career path to pursue it any further. Um, and i just felt this overwhelming sense of relief to pass wine exams some people pass them and they're like all right on to the next one you know uh, those guys like even in this market too like greg Stokes in columbus or austin height down here at deer i they're so studious and so disciplined i'm like I, i'm amazed by it uh, but it's not me it could never be me probably for the same reason i don't like sit at a desk is i'm like I am too easily distracted, I need to be in the car on my feet. And I don't know that that side of wine, for me, it comes with like tasting and talking about wine. And those some of those topics come up. But if you put a test in front of me, I mean, even the level two, even the certified sommelier exam, it's gotten so much more difficult. I know it has just to hear what people are testing on now, just to hear about that exam, just that overwhelming, daunting nature of it. That's portrayed in in TV shows and people i know who have recently taken that exam i don't think i would pass anymore i mean i think that is that has become so difficult i'm so impressed by anyone going that route uh but i don't really follow that that track at all it's um i like you know wine and food i like the way wine is tied to memories and experiences more that sort of like mfk fisher vibe of you know the the company makes the experience um, you it's the same reason a lot of people don't understand why the wine tastes so good when they're at the tasting room and not as good at home it's because they had you in that moment they captured it and they did a good job doing what they do so sometimes you you know romanticize a moment and maybe the wine wasn't the best you know I on one of my first dates with my now wife we shared a pretty lousy bottle of like grocery store wine at 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 Disney World (laughs) and uh but I have pictures of that. And I remember really enjoying it and just thinking like, this is really great. Uh, and we were at like the the fake 50s diner at Disney World, you know. And um, I don't know, that was, that was more to do with the experience and it was to do with the quality of that wine. I would never drink that wine.
0: But do you think kind of going through some of that exam stuff helped you? at all with your career like understanding wine because i'm sure like all the different wine sales jobs or distributors they would all love every single one of their reps to be a certified psalm or or something because it's that talking point well this is a sommelier and they're coming into your shop and this is what they have for you you know this week or whatever so i'm sure that was kind of an aspect of why you were kind of pushed towards it but do you think it kind of benefited you at all with your career
1: it definitely did i mean this was when i was in utah so especially during that time i shoveling, you know, grape skins out of a tank and making the olive oil and drinking wine with those people in in Italy. It was fantastic. Um, I didn't feel like I spent time learning about wine during that. It was just a job. I didn't know I was going to go into wine. I just I just knew I really liked what I was doing. And I liked drinking it. But I wouldn't say when I got hired on to do, you know, early wine rep stuff, I would not say I had solid wine knowledge. And that was after being wine director at a resort. (laughs) I would say I drank what I liked and I kind of made note of things, but i wasn't I wasn't really the kind of person to drink a bottle of wine and take notes or write things down. I was after I started studying for exams and you know working as a rep, I started keeping tasting notes and all of that at the urging of of my boss at the time. I don't do that now though uh, it really really helped me out then when I moved back to California to work for a you know, bigger winery and do the national sales thing. I was pretty intimidated though. Like I still didn't feel like I had a lot of knowledge and you're working for, you know, vintners with winemakers and they've both been in the same cellar making these wines for 30 years. And they, they're they the ones who implemented organics, bio, biodynamics, and they're the ones who made these decisions. And then they pull out a bottle of wine from their winery from, you know, a year where I was five years old. <laughs> you know, And it's like, that's pretty intimidating. And then you meet with a wine buyer who's two years younger than you and they're a master sommelier or they're you know, on the track to become that, that, that's pretty intimidating too. I've learned to just kind of speak to what you know and to not make anything up because you get caught. It's pretty much it. Just say, I don't know. I say that a lot.
0: One of the things I've kind of come across and, and learned from a lot of the people involved in the wine profession is that there are alternatives to being a You know, you don't have to be in a restaurant. You don't have to be owning a wine shop. If you want to do those things, great, but you don't have to. And a lot of people kind of make it to, you know, maybe like level two of the certification and then realize like, I don't need to go through this anymore to do what I want to do still relating to wine. You're in kind of, I would call an alternative career path where, you know, you basically started your own import and distribution company, which is not something I think a lot of people who get involved in wine wind up doing at least yet. Do you think more people will continue to kind of go down these alternative paths more so than being in restaurants working as a sommelier or owning a wine shop?
1: Yeah, I really hope so. I I'd, I'd love to do anything to help people think that they should also, you know, do this or or work in the wine world. Uh like I said, I didn't I didn't know what I was doing when I started. It just I lucked into that job. Uh, I knew a couple of people and I, I asked for it and and that happened. And I'm bringing on someone right now uh, to work for me. The main reason is that she asked me for the job like five times. And I was like, all right, all right, we'll just, you know, let's do it. But, but she doesn't have, you know, wine sales experience at all and is intimidated. And I'm like, nah, it's probably going to work because you just pushed me and convinced me to, you know, bring you on. I would definitely encourage people out there to go down the road of like, exploring uh, uh, wine. If you're in a restaurant, that is a really, really fun part of the restaurant to understand. If you're interested in business within the restaurant business, you should definitely understand your wine and liquor and beer course. If you want to open your own place, you need to understand how that affects the business. If you want to run the place you're working at, you need to understand. If you want to leave and become a rep for liquor, beer, or wine, it's valuable to be really, really good at the role you're already working in. If you're in hospitality, then, you know, make yourself known and go to events and, and taste everything and, and tell people that's what you want to do. A lot of the time, I think people are, are afraid to say that that's what they want to do, work in wine. Uh, or people think that there's too many of us already and there's not. There really is not. That's a, that is a huge myth I'd like to dispel. <laughs> in Ohio, is that oh, there's so many distributors. I'm like, wow, there are so few distributors here compared to other places I've lived. And I'll say that the biggest thing here is a little strange to me, given how you know the reputation of Midwesterners being so nice. Is that there's not a lot of conviviality in the wine scene here with wine salespeople. I kind of miss markets where you know all the wine salespeople who compete with each other get together at the end of the day for drinks and goof around and go to dinner together and all of that. Uh, it's a little more competitive here. So uh, it's kind of funny because we're definitely just kind of growing a scene here and we, we all need, we all kind of need each other. You know, there are some bigger distributors out in the market. And you have like, you know, the good mid-sized powerhouses like uh, Winecraft. And now they've got a couple of little tiny one-man bands out there um, trying to sell wine in, in Ohio. And I think that there's a market for all of it.
0: Do you think wine sales is a dying profession or, or one that possibly could be on the way out in the sense that with COVID, there is the rise to direct to consumer. So a lot of restaurants selling wine, pick it up to go, deliver it to you. And I think, you know, people probably might have learned a little bit more um, during COVID with everybody drinking as much as everybody was <laughs> probably do as well you know, is it going to become where the wine sales person coming into your restaurant is is going to be fewer and far between and and it's going to be kind of go online and this is everything we have and this is what it's priced at and mix and match, pick and choose? I don't think so. I think distributors and the wine sales profession
1: works really well for the people who, for lack of a better expression, don't have a voice. A lot of people who make wine or went down that path of doing wine you know their own brand, their own label, whatever it is. They're creatives, um, and uh, like you find that more often than not, that somebody from a creative background uh, went into winemaking and that they were drawn to that. Not that many creative people are are salespeople naturally, but I would encourage most wineries that have a good direct sales presence to to continue to do that. You look at you know the import thing is is huge because those those people aren't here; they can't sell their wines here on their own. You need a distribution channel. It's also the law to sell wine here above a certain volume. You have to have a distributor and all of that. Uh, Also direct sales for producers in California. Financially, doesn't make any sense. Warehousing, trucking, all of that. Somebody has to be kind of boots on the ground. But the DTC thing, it had its chance to really kind of grow during the pandemic. And I hope that it has worked out for a lot of producers because the better they do, the, the more wine there will be available to distributors like me, right? Like When they sell direct, they make much more money than when they sell wine to a distributor. So I would hope that they double down and make more wine and there's more available for both of us. And they can sell direct in their market and to their wine club members across the country. And that I can, you know, ask for double the amount of something and get it next year. Uh, that's not always the case. But I will tell you one thing that's very interesting is that the people who are in those wine clubs, say you're in uh, Columbus and you buy wine directly from Scar of the Sea in San Luis Obispo. If I do a Scar of the Sea wine dinner in Columbus, that person usually comes to that dinner as well. So there is, it's kind of like, you know, you need distribution to be your, your hype beast around the country, right? They're your people. They're the ones who make it look good. Uh, And that's how you end up on restaurant lists. So I don't think that, you know, it takes a lot of like going in over and over and over again, like for a winemaker making 2000 cases of wine in California or 500 cases or something like that to get their wine on the wine list at the four horsemen in Brooklyn, you need a salesperson to do that. Like someone who goes in all the time, reminds them, has it available. But for someone in California making that amount of wine, saddling that amount of debt, financially it doesn't make any sense to go in there. So, I don't think it's a dying profession. I just think that you it's you have to be adaptable like all the time. Sales in general, but with wine it's a it's a changing world, you know. Like I said, we need more small like chef-driven restaurants and we need more people who are really passionate about food and wine in this market. So, start small and start talking about cities in Ohio and then can look at the bigger picture, but for now, we
0: need more reps. Is there a wine region or style that you kind of gravitate towards? You know, I find everybody has something kind of that first area that they discovered that really got them hooked into wine. So did you have anything like that? It's always been French wine. Yeah, it started out with, uh, well, it was was Robert Redford who put a glass
1: of white Burgundy under my nose uh, and got me really, really in love with French wines. Um, But Burgundy, I could say I did... I did have a moment with Burgundy and I cared, but I just, I've never been able to afford the wines. Um, I've always really, really loved wines from the Loire Valley, which a lot of wine dorks will tell you. So I love Chenin Blanc, specifically Mont-Louis-sur-Loire. Uh, and I love Cabernet Franc, specifically Saumur champigny just kind of over the river from each other. Uh, and Champagne, standard
0: nerd answer. I know you said that uh, you're focused on Europe, you know, for the import business. Is there any specific part of Europe that you're focusing on? Wines from all over France,
1: and then I would say Spanish wines, I specifically Penedes. I'd like
0: to get some some sparkling wine as well, uh, and then Northern Italian. When you and your wife go out to dinner, you know, when you guys go out, do you compulsively check the wine list to see like what's on there, who they got it from? Every time. <laughs> it's a sickness.
1: It's fucked up. And I automatically make assumptions and judge <laughs> based on what they carry and, and all of that, too. I also look for opportunity uh, for how I'm going to get in there if I'm not there. So I also kind of look for things that are in my world or that, you know, oh, I love that producer. I love that. Or, you know, and you can kind of, you know, that's kind of what you've you're trying to do is find common ground to see, you know, if you've got something that works for them too. And if you go into a restaurant and the list is all like big, you know, national brands at a sort of like million case production level, you kind of know that I I probably don't have a shot here, probably paying five, six bucks a bottle for these. So I don't sell any wine like that. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of difficult. And that's, you know, that's more of the wine business than not. These small brands, the stuff that I like to sell and represent it's the tiniest, tiniest part of the world of, of wine. Um, there are so many, you know, million case brands owned by massive companies, and there's so much corporate wine out there, and there's so much land that's farmed really badly, and all of that. But I don't really get down
0: about it because I don't really step into that world at all. I'd say Cincinnati's, you know, still a beer town, much like Columbus. A lot of breweries, a lot of great breweries. But you know, Columbus for probably still a Napa Cab town, from what everybody kind of tells me. I think Cincinnati's really an Italian wine uh, town, like you kind of mentioned, do you think the city's drinking habits are shifting at all to people either being more open to wine or exploring wines outside of the Italian varietal or anything like that? Or do you think there's still mainly a beer town with kind of a wine subset? I think it's shifting, but I could be wrong.
1: Uh, <laughs> it feels that way to me. It feels like people are coming around to it. I think, again, one of the more interesting things because of the import side and because of the uh, inundation of minimal intervention or natural wine in Cincinnati too, that has helped bridge that gap for beer drinkers. We have things like Petnat with a single fermentation. Or just, you know, I have a lot of beer drinkers come to tastings and say, oh, that, you know, reminds me of a cider. I'm like, there you go. Let's let's do this, you know, and and talk about what kind of, beer i like and all of that which is it's usually not a great conversation i like mexican lager at cervezas I, I don't really
0: drink a lot of craft beer how has the food and restaurant industry in cincinnati changed since you've been involved and what do you think still needs to change where do you see it headed i think
1: that people have gotten very focused on their menus and their drink programs you know again the pandemic kind of messed up a lot of momentum that people had but the the jump start and the reignition of of restaurants and wine programs around here has been more interesting uh than i i think what was going on before the pandemic so you know everyone had to get scrappy and creative like all the time every single day there for a couple of years and uh i i think for some people that exhibits in some form of like burnout and for some people it's like all right we got to keep doing that i'm to stay on my toes all the time what if this happens again how are we going to do this people have been used to running kind of lean and mean lately. And I, I feel like things are turning around and coming coming back a bit. Food has gotten a lot better, I would say. A lot of restaurants that I enjoyed before have really dialed it in. And it's it's pretty impressive when you remember that people are running on a much leaner staff than they used to, that it's harder to find hospitality and backup house workers right now. I'm pretty impressed by the way a lot of these people have been able to do this. Smaller restaurants, what needs to happen is just more, you know, or small places, restaurants with tidy little wine lists and nice little drink programs. And you know, a local, a pub, a place, a place to go. I don't mean like gastropub, but like a spot that people feel comfortable popping into in their neighborhood, sitting at the bar, ordering a few plates, maybe a bottle of wine, maybe a couple glasses, maybe going on Tuesday and then going on Friday or Saturday for a different experience. We need a few of those. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'm not going to open one. Someone should. <laughs> I don't have time.
0: <laughs> what's uh What's next for you professionally in parcel wine? I mean, obviously, you're you're bringing somebody on to the organization there. But aside from expanding the import list and everything, would you ever open up a online wine shop instead of a physical one or something like that, or a wine club or or anything like that? Uh, the
1: laws would probably stop me from doing that. You don't really get to sell to people if you're a distributor, but. Uh, I would say continuing to work with the people and encouraging people who want to, you know, open their own place and do that. Um, Lending support. I am bringing someone on. I'm actually bringing on two people in the next couple of weeks here uh, with a third in a couple of months. So there's some, there's some growth happening and I'm really looking forward to having some time to myself again. My wife's really looking forward to me being home for dinner sometimes. Uh, Really looking forward to growing this into something that is like, Good for my family as well as you know good for the people who want more wine. But I'm looking forward to being an employer and, and taking care of some people and having them come work with me and do whatever.
0: So this next question comes from a previous guest on the podcast, Chef Derek Wilcox of Amari in uh, Los Angeles. left behind a question: Do you believe that being a hospitality professional encourages a wider sense of social responsibility for yourself, or do you think those two things for yourself are unrelated? definitely encourages it. I mean, I think
1: hospitality is, I I really subscribe to that, that sort of Danny Meyer thing that it's, you know, it has to be natural, that it has to, to be something you want to do, that you like taking care of people. Once that's the case, it kind of is like, it's inward and outward. Like you, you want to be, you want to claim some responsibility for the things in the industry and in the world that aren't done the right way that that don't take care of people and so you know instantly I you know comes to mind becoming like an employer for people my background in hospitality I'm like I gotta make sure people want you know can tell me that they want to take a couple days off I want people to come to me and say gas is more expensive can you help me I want people to come to me and say I need health insurance I want all these things set up to do it right otherwise I honestly would have hired somebody months ago it just takes a while to get these things set up but uh, yeah, you need, you need a lot of compassion to do this. And it's like, I really wish I was some calculating like business guy, but I'm like, I think the right thing to do is, is to like care for what I'm doing and make sure that that care is exhibited in, in the, you know, ethos of my little world of parcel. Uh, the people who do work with me are like, yeah, we, we should, we should go out there and take care of people with wine as well. And it's not like all, Sappy. I want work hard, play hard. I want to, you know, I want to get competitive in the market. I want to do more dinners with people like Jordan Brown. And, you know, that stuff is really, really fun. That's it's fun to get to the end of the day and say, now I'm gonna do this wine dinner. And then you get to kind of put out actual, you know, restaurant hospitality and, and talk to people and get their story too. But yeah, I, I think it's for sure encourages it. Um people wanna be heard and tell their story on both sides of the table. So
0: What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest?
1: Oh, Should have seen that coming.
0: I'd ask for
1: as many people's opinion as possible. Why is it so difficult to convince people that it matters where their food and their drinks come from?
0: Question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what's the one wine that you can't import now for whatever reason that you someday want to be able to import? Whether you, you just can't get on their list or or whatever the reason, but one day you'd love to be able to bring it in.
1: Yeah, I really love the wines of Van Gert Knoll. Um They're in the Wachau in in uh, Austria, and uh, they have a national importer who I contacted and, and asked if I could support their portfolio to get those wines. And they've already uh, gone with another distributor in Ohio. And I'm hopeful that I'll just check in every now and then and see how it's going and if I can... Poach it.
0: (laughs) The last set of questions we ask is everybody comes on the podcast. Nice compare and contrast across all the episodes for all our listeners. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your wine career thus far? There's been a lot of people who have helped me along the way. A
1: turning point for me where it really, you know, the farming thing became more and more important um, was John Williams of Sleep, who I still talk to. He was probably the first person to really like drive that home to me. And it, it was probably more like talking to him now, he's like, I was probably on a sales pitch, you know, landslide of bullshit and like probably really grabbed you with it, you know. But uh, he's he's a very charming and funny guy. He's one of the people who really, really made me like fully believe like, OK, you can do this. I mean, dry farming in Napa is hard. <laughs> that's like, I, and it's been a long time since he first got me into that. I'm like, in 2022, I'd love to know how that dry farming in Napa is going with climate change. But yeah, John John was a huge influence as well as, uh, as Gordon Hugh here in Cincinnati. I'd say like for what I'm doing now, that uh, knowing about how he built winecraft and how he does things, it's, uh, that's a pretty big influence.
0: What's your desert island wine? It
1: has to be Mont-Louis, Shannon Blanc. I'd pretty much rather drink that than anything. So maybe a Little Summer Blanc, actually. Not not Marlo-y.
0: Restaurant that you'd recommend, you know, I know you don't own or work in a restaurant, but um somebody gets stuck at the airport, kinda reaches out to you, Hey, we're stuck here overnight. You know, where should we go eat? Where are you pointing them?
1: My two favorite spots right now are Pleasantry and Kiki. For the wine list, I'd I'd send them to Pleasantry.
0: Bucket list, travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So any place that you haven't visited yet that you still want to go to, and then any restaurant that you haven't eaten at that you still want to dine at one day? Travel destination, Patagonia. Big on the
1: big on the outdoor stuff. Never been down there. Never been to South America. Bucket list restaurants. I've been to a lot of them. <laughs> I'm trying to think of where to go. Ah, That's tough. I'd honestly say I'd probably go for like a, a street vendor type food in in thailand or something that would probably be more bucket list for me can't think of like a, a brick and mortar restaurant space that's famous that i I'd,
0: I'd really like die to go to craziest thing you've seen happen while working in the wine industry i flew into a market and uh you
1: know got in crashed at my hotel had the sales rep call me in the morning say he was picking me up picked me up got in his car which was actually like a at the inside of a trash can uh, was just like the worst place. A uh, lot of empty like chocolate milk bottles, which is very strange to me uh, for, a, I mean, this was a man in his like early 40s at the time. Uh, and then told me that the first two appointments had canceled and so we'd skip right to lunch it was 10.30 in the morning, but not a problem because uh, he knew where we could get lunch like earlier in the day. And so he took me to his mom's house and showed me his taxidermy collection which was mostly stuffed squirrels. Did he hunt the squirrels or like what's... Dude, I don't know how the squirrels met their end, but it was <laughs> like, it was a weird room to be in. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's not my favorite day selling wine. Although 10 years later, it's fucking
0: hilarious. <laughs> food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that you know, candy, fast food, anything that's just super unhealthy, but you just can't help it. Fast food in and out burger
1: every time. People always complain about the fries. Find a McDonald's nearby. Get an in and out double double with cheese and a and a thing of McDonald's fries, and you're in good shape. Where I'll go with
0: that wine recommendations. So break this down into kind of four different price points: so twenty dollars and under, fifty dollars and under, hundred dollars and under, and then anything over a hundred.
1: Twenty dollars and under, uh, Austrian white wines in one liters. Uh, they're they're a plenty. Not a hard thing to find. Go into a wine shop and look for a one liter of Austrian Grüner Veltliner. Probably going to be $15, $16. Killer bottle of wine, good with just about everything. Uh, what was the second category? 50 and under. 50 and under? Man, that's like everything I drink. I, if you want to get into like French reds, start with the Loire Valley with Chinon, with Bourgueil, and uh, Summer Champagne in the sort of like $25 to $50 range. You're going to be drinking really, really fantastic French wine at those price points. Um, Cap Franc, super versatile. And that is how it's going to be best expressed as well up in the hundred and under hundred and under. I just, I'd start buying large format wine. I'd start buying Magnums. If you're going to spend that much, I, I do, I do have a belief that wine shouldn't be, you know, ridiculously expensive. So um, if you can justify that cost, I think special occasion stuff. So I'd say large format or look for wine from a vintage that's, you know, either acclaimed or a vintage that is special to you. So maybe you buy wine from the year you were married or something like that, yeah. And then over 100 no limit. I don't know. If I was spending 100 bucks on wine, I'd buy three bottles. Over $100. Older bottle of Clos Rouchard, summer Champigny, mid-2000s maybe. Had an 06 recently that was pretty fantastic. That'll set you back. Favorite Instagram account you follow? The Sussmans, the, uh, the food meme, restaurant meme, hospitality meme account in New York. It cracks me
0: up. Absolutely hilarious. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene that kind of stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there anybody who was on TV in kind of the hospitality, culinary industry, Emerald, Guy Fieri, whoever, that you just kind of gravitated towards?
1: It's not that I'm not a Bourdain fan. It's that I didn't, I didn't really have the time. You know, seeing him in retrospect, um, there are iconic episodes, right, with like Obama and Vietnam, and that, that's pretty great, but... I am a huge fan of Graham Kerr, the Galloping Gourmet. It's a 1970s British TV chef who just got absolutely shit-faced in every episode or came out drunk at the beginning and is just, hes amazing. <laughs> There's an episode about preparing a treacle tart that just kills me in the first five minutes. I just don't know how anybody could function on TV that many episodes that drunk. Hysterical. The Galloping Gourmet. Is the best.
0: Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Uh, yeah, I'm uh,
1: parcel underscore wine on Instagram. I do, uh, I update the story as frequently as possible. You'd see where my events are going to be, where I'm going to show up, or someone who's working with me is going to show up. Um, my personal account is kind of linked to that and has a lot of that stuff going to that's SF Rover, R O B E R.
0: If a restaurant wants to get in contact with you about wine or anything like that, go through the website or uh, I would say
1: through Instagram, direct messages, fine, or uh, through my email, Chris
0: at parcelwine.us. It's cool to get kind of the distribution side. We've had Amanda Moss on here who does wine sales, and that was super like eye-opening and informative just about how all that kind of works. And this really ties well into that. It's kind of like this next level of like when you get into the distribution and importing side and... It's always fun for me to talk to different wine professionals and kind of what they've experienced and what they've gone through and everything. So I'm sure we saw you at Please back in the day when we were there before it closed. But yeah, I mean, stay in touch. It's really cool to see, you know, this little importer kind of growing and growing and kind of taking over the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, Columbus kind of area. And it's always cool to see people branch out on their own and, and start their own thing. So if you ever need anything from us, hit us up, let us know. You know, we try and support everybody as much as we can, whenever we can. And uh, hopefully we'll see you at uh, some event or some dinner or something that uh, somebody has you doing, some parings or something.
1: Yeah, I'll make a point of it. Try to get up to Columbus more. Cheers.
0: A big thanks again to Chris for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his morning to come on and chat about his career and Parcel Wine and where they've been and where they're headed. Again, you can follow them on Instagram at Parcel underscore Wine. Also at SF Rover. You can follow us on Instagram as well at Spoon Mob. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. And then make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever your preferred podcast app is apple spotify youtube whatever we're on everything so you can find us just pretty much search spoon mob it'll come up and then you can hit the follow or subscribe button or whatever that individual platform uses these days but yeah appreciate everybody listening i hope you guys enjoyed the conversation it was super interesting to kind of get into the importing side of wine where you know amanda moss and i think thatcher baker briggs both kind of Talked a little bit about it, you know, aren't dedicated importers uh, themselves, essentially, but that's essentially what uh, Chris is and what he's building. So you can find his wines kind of all across Cincinnati. They usually post different businesses. Iris Reed, they've had stuff. Uh, I think Pleasantry, I believe Fausto, they've had some stuff there too, as well, um, that they've imported and a bunch of different other places. So, you know, for updates and everything, check out their website too, as well. That's it for this week. Appreciate everybody listening. If you've been here for a while, appreciate uh, continued support. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. I appreciate you being here and listening and we look forward uh, to more great episodes for you guys to listen to. And we will talk to you guys next week.